1: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations.
2: This is the 10th anniversary of Design Matters, and to mark the anniversary, we're replaying some favorite shows from the archive. This one, an interview with Caroline Paul and Wendy McNaughton, was recorded in April of 2013. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from DesignObserver.com. On this program, Debbie
1: Millman talks with author Caroline Paul and illustrator Wendy McNaughton about their unusually intimate collaboration on a book.
3: She was going to write the book, and then she was going to give it to me, and then I was going to draw to her writing. But we quickly realized that this is not the typical writer-illustrator relationship. Because we're in a relationship.
2: Here's Debbie Millman.
3: The author
0: Caroline Paul has fought fires, crashed planes, and been trapped on mountainsides. But recently, she suffered a more common calamity. Her cat, Tibby, disappeared. She looked and looked and never found him. And then, five weeks later, the cat came back. But why? What was he up to? Caroline's attempt to answer that question is told in Lost Cat, a true story of love, desperation, and GPS technology. Her partner, the illustrator Wendy McNaughton, provided the illustrations. Caroline and Wendy, welcome to Design Matters. So happy to be here. Great to be here, Debbie. So, Wendy, I understand that you grew up in San Francisco, and you graduated from Art Center College of Design in Pasadena in 1999. What made you decide to study art and design? Did you always want to be an artist and a designer?
3: Well, first off, I should say that I actually grew up in Marin County, which is across the bridge from San Francisco. But I claim to have grown up in San Francisco, as many kids who have grown up in Marin do.
0: So you're deliberately misleading me.
3: Yes. <laughs> and I'm glad it worked up until this moment. <laughs> so now we I tell on myself. Um, but I have always drawn my earliest memory of drawing was seen on the cover of some instruction manual about drawing a kid who had a plate of cookies in front of them, a glass of milk, and they were drawing in the middle of the day. And I told my mother that that looked like the perfect life to me. And
0: And what did she say?
3: You can do that. My parents were very supportive.
0: But from what I understand, you swore off San Francisco when you were 19. Why?
3: I associated San Francisco with the Bay Area and the Bay Area with my situation of being 19 at the time. And so I moved to Los Angeles to go to art school, and never thought that there could be any other San Francisco than the one that I knew. In Marin County. Exactly.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So you, after college, you worked as a copywriter, and you also designed a campaign for the first Democratic local election in Rwanda in 2000,
3: in Rwanda. That's true. What was that like? It was different than anything I'd ever experienced I was working as a copywriter in an advertising agency, and I thought I had the dream job, exactly what I thought I wanted to be doing, but I was very unhappy. Why? I thought that I could, in advertising, make people ask questions and make them think. And advertising is a fantastic thing where you come up with ideas, but it's not as much about asking people to think than it is telling them what to think. So you're working doing –
0: for the first Democratic local election in Rwanda in 2000, and you also worked on campaigns in Africa. You produced a film in the Democratic Republic of the Congo – What made you decide to do that type of work while you were in advertising?
3: I was unhappy in advertising, and I was offered an opportunity to go to Rwanda to develop this campaign. And so I think that had I been in a different place, I might not have jumped at the opportunity to go to a place that I had never been to before, didn't know anything about. But I grabbed it.
0: What was the mood like during that time there?
3: I was – expecting it to be very somber and scary. And it was incredibly hopeful and overwhelmingly positive, And that's what drew me to keep going back.
0: So I know that you then left advertising. In doing my research on your history for today's show, I was really surprised to see that there was actually another stop on your journey between leaving advertising and becoming a full-time illustrator, and that was going to Columbia University to get a master's degree in international social welfare. Yeah. (laughs)
3: When and why? It's an odd circuitous (laughs) route, but it does actually make sense when you see it in, in retrospect, right? So when I went to work in Africa I learned that in advertising basically we're taught how to come up with ideas for people but I had to work with people in a way or in a very different culture I'd never learned to ask questions and then trust their answers and incorporate that into whatever solution I was coming up with so I realized I needed training that I hadn't gotten so through working with nonprofits, I decided to go back to get that education in social work and
0: then you went back to San Francisco and became an illustrator. To
3: make a long story short, yes.
0: We'll make it a little bit longer.
3: <laughs> uh, when I was at Columbia studying social work, I realized that one of the things that nonprofits really need to learn to do was tell their story. So when I got out of um, graduate school, I actually came back to San Francisco and started working at an advertising agency that only worked with nonprofits so that I could help them tell their stories to meet their goals. In terms of
0: making the decision to actually formally become an illustrator, I read that you said that for a long time you were trying really hard to make what you thought was good art, which meant the opposite of what you actually loved to do. And during your time in school, you were actually contemptuous of illustration and you thought it was the lowliest form of art making.
3: I said that? wow yeah so what changed (laughs) you know for a long time I think in the fine art world illustration was considered something to be a decoration that's kind of what it was and hopefully that is changing now but I made a lot of bad art for a long time I mean the worst videos and photographs you've ever seen in your life what made you keep trying I think I was just experimenting, you know. That's one of the great things about going to an undergraduate art school is you just try every medium. And so I got an incredible foundation. I also learned what I didn't do well.
0: Well, in the very same conversation that you were having when you said this... Lily thing about illustrating. Um, You also said, but once I came back to drawing, I recognized that this is the work I want to make. It makes the most sense to me and I believe in it. And I've kind of reclaimed the term. It means something very different to me now than it did back then. And now your work has appeared in the New York Times, it, NPR, Juxtapose, Good, Time Out, New York, Seven by Seven, Gizmodo, Edible, San Francisco, and you're a staff illustrator for Longshot Magazine and Rumpus. Now, you one one last quote. You said that drawing is a muscle, it is your hand and it is your brain. Can you can you elaborate? Tell me a little bit more about what you mean by that.
3: I think that more than anything. Drawing is learning to look at something and to almost physically wrap your line of sight around the object in such a way like you're almost sculpting it. And then that understanding of something visually and paying such close attention to it almost runs straight down your arm and into your hand. So you start tracing and carving the same with your hand. And like any muscle, if you work at it for a while, uh, get stronger, and then if you stop, even for a couple of days, it atrophies. So before we start
0: talking about your latest book, I want to talk with your partner about some of her background and how she got to where you are now. So, Caroline, you grew up in New England. You have an identical twin, a younger brother, and a menagerie of animals. And I read that you did some goofy things as an adolescent. You learned all the constellations in the Western Hemisphere. Kudos to you. Um, and somehow, I don't know why, you tried to set the Guinness Book of World Records for crawling. Crawling? Really? Why crawling?
2: Well, because I had no other skills. <laughs> and uh, I didn't know that crawling was a skill. <laughs> it's innate. We, we, we were, I figured we were born and we crawled. And I think early on, I um, this isn't self-deprecating. This is sort of an assessment of myself. I'm not somebody who has a lot of net, what I consider natural skills, but I do have doggedness. And this was seemed like a perfect uh, sort of confluence for me. Pick a thing, something that was sort of basic, and then do it sort of longer, harder than anybody else. Did you wear knee pads? Yeah, I was kind of – I was 15, and I didn't think it out very well. And we put our knee pads on the outside. I did it with another friend. And we put our knee pads on the outside of our jeans, and then it rained. And so basically for a total of, was it 12 hours? Uh, you... Did you train? <laughs> I mean that with all sincerity. No, but we, you know, what we did do is we were very, very determined to set this record. And so we, we called the Guinness Book of World Records and found out the steps you had to take to actually be in, in the book once you had broken the record. And we followed all those steps to the T, Except for breaking the record. I was actually pulled. The first quarter mile, one of the things you have to do is log everything. And it has to be an observer logging it. And the first quarter mile took us nine minutes. My friend dropped out at five miles. My last quarter mile, because we did this on a track, Took me an hour and a half, and I was hallucinating, and they pulled me off the track. Wow. They basically ended it. Yeah, I think they saw that.
0: Did you cry? Did you celebrate? I
2: think inside I was sort of glad because um, I don't think I could have had the strength to quit myself. Um, so, I was, you know, this happens in life. You're sort of glad when somebody else makes a decision for you.
0: So you graduated from Stanford University, where you studied communications. Um, you said that getting into Stanford was hard, but graduating was easy. How so?
2: I think it's like many things in our culture; they're gilded a little more than maybe they should be. And Stanford's very hard to get into, but once you sort of do, it's like it's pretty much like any college. Except you do—you are surrounded by very, very smart people, which was great.
0: And at the time, I understand you were expected to follow a career path that involved what you referred to as a briefcase and a bonus package. Um, But at the time, you had a vague idea that you might become a documentary filmmaker. But instead, you worked at a Berkeley public radio station, KPFA, and you then joined the San Francisco Fire Department.
2: Well, I did not know what I wanted to do when I grew up. And it seemed like everybody around me did. You know doctor, lawyer, engineer, grad school of some sort, and the only thing I knew was that i I could write a little um and so I and still, crawl I could crawl <laughs> <laughs> so that's why I went in communications because I was going to be a journalist, and I really liked documentary filmmaking because I felt like filmmaking in particular was really something that could change the world, and I was at that age where I believed I could change the world and I worked at Fay, which is part of the Pacifica Radio Group, doing the morning news, because that was, again, sort of reporting. So it was always that sort of journalism track. And then one day, uh, well, it was 1988, and there were a lot of stories coming across my desk about the San Francisco Fire Department that had recently let women in, a in couple months before and was having a very hard time with charges of sexism and racism. And I thought, well, maybe I should go in and do an undercover story on that. So there was a test coming up, and so I went undercover, which, which basically meant that I was trying to be very observant of any possible harassment uh, or any sort of tricky things that was trying to keep me as a woman out. And uh, I went through the testing process, and there was none of that. And to my surprise, I got in.
0: And then you decided to become a firefighter.
2: It wasn't that qu- on. Wasn't that quick? <laughs> I kind of freaked out because I knew that that was my my upbringing was that I was not supposed to be that. I mean, I had gone to Stanford. Um, my dad was a banker. My mom was a social worker, and I felt like. Being a firefighter was just not the track that they had expected of me, and it wasn't. And it it never occurred to me to be a firefighter. Um, And so I actually um, deferred and then went to Bolivia on a mountain bike uh, expedition with another friend of mine. And we sort of mountain biked through Bolivia. I don't know why. that was. I was trying to figure myself out by climbing the proverbial mountain, but the real mountain too. And um, when I came back and I still wasn't sure, and then the 1989 San Francisco earthquake happened— And I saw all these stories about the heroism of the firefighters and thought, you know, this is a more complicated situation. This isn't necessarily just a racist, sexist fire department. Um, There are some really amazing uh, qualities of the people there. And so I accepted and became the 15th woman in a department of 1,500 men.
0: And you worked most of your career on Rescue 2, where you were responsible for search and rescue. Do you have any sense of how many lives you saved? No, I don't do that, Tally. (laughs) But, I mean, that's certainly changing the world, saving a life.
2: Yeah, it was interesting. I mean, I had had these grandiose ideas that if I made sort of this great, hard-hitting documentary film, the world would change. And I, I think my scope changed, and I started to really try to make a difference To the people that I was called to in probably one of the most intimate times of their lives, because they they were usually it was usually a traumatic situation. They were either in great physical pain because we went to many medical calls, or their house was on fire, or someone they loved needed saving. And I found that that was for me at least as powerful. How do you
0: make that decision to go forward into that kind of danger? Um,
2: You know, it makes me uncomfortable when people and especially when firefighters sort of talk about themselves as heroes, because I think we go into the job for a lot of different reasons. And I'm going to be very plain. One of the reasons I took the job is because it's the biggest adventure you can have every single day. Every day it was either I was birthing a child, I was going to a shooting, I was running into very big fires. And that really suits my personality. So I don't want to try to say that I'm such a hero. I just think it takes a certain personality and we're all saving people's lives every day. I mean, it might not be so obvious. It's for me it's obvious, you know. I have been to calls where I am doing CPR on an infant or I'm, you know, taking someone who is drowning out of the ocean. So that's obvious, but I think we all have our versions of that. And that's just mine. And and I certainly understand
0: the notion of heroism being something that's very personal. Um I'm actually interested in how to overcome the fear of going into some situation like that. Did you have fear going in or was it something that you just didn't
2: want to acknowledge or feel even? That's a really good question. Uh, This is where the the gender differences were really interesting to me because I think as women, we're really sort of brought up to be very free with talking about how scared we are all the time. You'll notice that men don't do that. That's not the first emotion that they connect with. And so when you're running into a burning building, there's lots of emotions going on. And one of them is fear. And for me, I was really clear that I did not want to connect with fear as a first emotion. I noticed that the men that I really respected didn't talk about being scared. If you talk about being scared, I think you really kind of become scared. So while we're we're all scared, I think I had other emotions that I was really um, responding to, and one of them was fear of humiliation. And uh, maybe this wasn't—well, it was kind of true at the time. You know, when you're a woman and you're one of the few, whatever you do reflects on all women. So I was really determined that I had to, you know, live up to that.
0: After Fighting Fire, you wrote your first novel, a book titled East Wind Rain— and a movie based on the book is currently in production and is uh, hopefully going to be directed by Japanese director Masato Harada. Talk about the title and the premise of the book a little bit. I understand that the book title, East Wind Rain, was the code for the Japanese plan of attack on Pearl Harbor.
2: Yeah, it's called, it was called the Weather Codes. And when the Japanese were trying to figure out where their initial attack was going to be, it wasn't necessarily going to be the United States. They were thinking of either hitting Russian outposts, British outposts, or American outposts. And they had a code to warn the diplomats in all the different countries, their diplomats, so that if a certain code was heard over the radio, the weather forecast, supposedly, those diplomats would then flee so If the weather forecast was south wind rain, that meant they were going to be attacking British outposts and all the Japanese diplomats who were in the British outposts would then leave. And the uh, weather code to indicate they were going to attack Pearl Harbor was east wind rain. And so the book is both
0: fiction and nonfiction. So what made you decide to approach the book in this way?
2: Well, the story is a really amazing story and not many people know it. And it's about... That, in fact, uh, after the attack on Pearl Harbor, one of the Japanese pilots crash-landed his Zero on a, on a very isolated Hawaiian island, and he lived. This is a true story. And the Hawaiian islanders on that island didn't realize that there had just been an attack on Pearl Harbor. So they didn't know who this person was and why, because they were so isolated. There was one Japanese-American couple on the island— And they spoke Japanese, and the pilot told them. And now they were faced with this terrible choice of what to do. And it takes place over seven days. And what's so interesting about it is it really is a microcosm of America at the time. And I wanted to stick as close to the truth as possible, but there wasn't a lot of information on the story. So really, fiction was the way to go.
0: It's a remarkable book. Your current book starts off with a crash landing as well. Your new book is a collaboration with Wendy McNaughton, and it's titled Lost Cat. A True Story of Love, Desperation, and GPS Technology. You wrote it. Wendy illustrates it. And it is absolutely remarkable. I'm going to read a little blurb uh, that Wendy Han wrote about what the book is about. And it says, When our cat disappeared for five weeks, we were devastated. When he returned, fat and happy, we were overjoyed. We found our lost cat. But we were also... Jealous. He had a secret life. What was it? We had to know. And so, using everything from GPS to kitty cameras and animal communicators, we began to stalk him. So the book begins with Caroline crawling away from the wreckage of her small experimental plane, which had crashed. Now, Caroline, I understand that you told the first person to reach you after the crash not to call 911. Why?
2: Because I didn't want the firefighters to come and scrape me off my runway. The firefighters would come and take me to the hospital it seemed like just the worst solution to what was already a very bad situation.
0: And you had already left the fire department at this time yeah. after 13 and a half years. Um, why were you flying experimental planes?
2: Well, I left the fire department with an injury. I would fallen in a fire. And so I had been flying since I was 18. I've flown many things, p- paragliders and small aircraft. And then I decided that a, an experimental plane was a perfect fusion of uh, sort of safety because it had a motor, which a paraglider does not... And excitement, because it was still a plane.
0: Yeah, I I see the the logic in that. Um, I understand
2: (laughs) that the extent of the accident
0: required that your leg needed to be fitted carefully back together with metal scaffolding inside and out. And you write in the book that your ankle was smashed into smithereens, and your surgeon told you this with an expression that suspiciously resembled glee. That sounds mean. He really was gleeful in telling you that you're... Leg was smashed to smithereens?
2: They were, they were very fascinated and impressed with my decimated ankle.
3: I think the repair of it was quite a challenge.
0: So after you were discharged from the hospital, you went home to your two 13-year-old tabbies, Tibula and Fibula, which you affectionately nicknamed Tibby and Fibby. Why, why Tibula and Fibula, and what was the connection to what actually was your injury? I ironically, if that's the right word to use here.
2: Well, it was sort of ironic at the time. In the hospital, they told me I had decimated my tibia and my fibula. And I said, those are my cats. And of course, <laughs> I was on a lot of morphine. And they just thought I was just another idiot, you know, uh, who was, you know, post-surgery. And uh, in fact, I, I do have two cats named tibia and fibula. And I'm sad to say that I had broken my tibia and my fibula in an, another flying accident. I crashed my paraglider. Oh. See, I remember we can, yeah. we, can we go back to the no skill part just the dogged <laughs> cuz <'Cause> this is
0: <laughs> Oh, well, I know so little about this that I actually realize I mispronounced tibia. I said tibula, so it's tibia and fibula. I will never forget that again. So in any case, you and the kitties had been together 13 years. It was the longest relationship of your adult life. Um, Wendy, you had just begun to start dating Caroline. Kitties were not a big part of your life. In fact, you weren't even a cat person.
3: I wasn't much of a pet person. So you're in a new relationship. Before
0: the accident, you're in that phase of love that didn't obey what you referred to as any known rules of physics. The past six months had been a stomach-dropping, world-tilting, rainbow-laden, cloud-gilded time during which we had showed only our perfect selves. So you're no longer a perfect self. You have a leg that's smashed to smithereens. You come home to your kitties. Wendy is being nice to you, but every day you expect her to lean in and whisper that she'd had enough and walk out the door. And who would have blamed her? We hadn't been together long enough to justify this type of burden. You were in a very dark depression,
2: I was in a really dark depression there's a w- there is a thing that happens i mean first of all you 've had a bad accident, then you 're immobile, and then they ply you with a lot of drugs and i don 't think this is abnormal to have sunk, um, but I was having sort of panic attacks and it was a bad, bad time. but your cats were there to console you yep, and then tibby disappears.
0: What did you do? What did you feel?
2: Well, I was devastated, and there was nothing much I could do because I was still immobile on the couch. Um, But Wendy really rallied, as did some of our friends, and they did the normal things you do, poster, Craigslist, The Pound. And uh, then weeks passed, and then a month passed, and I realized I had to face it that, you know, he was just too fearful and shy and skittish to so he was survive. kind of a
0: nerdy cat. You described him like if he was a person, he'd have like the Coke eyeglasses, the Coke lenses, right? And his books would
2: be kicked in the mud every day at lunch. So he yeah. was like a
0: Poindexter kind of a cat.
2: He was, yeah.
0: You consulted a pet psychic, I believe, and and— Um, The description of the pet psychic was actually rather wonderful. I'd like to read it. Uh, This psychic did not look the way I thought a psychic would. She did not wear large rings or squint into a crystal ball. She sported a stylish haircut and yoga clothes and checked email, which is where I sent her the details of Tibby's disappearance she thought Tibby was okay. She did, yeah. She thought that he was like hanging out with kids and that he'd return on a Thursday. And the waning moon. And the waning moon. But you you were concerned because, not because of the notion of whether or not to believe in a pet psychic, you just seemed to, but more because Tibby didn't like kids, right?
2: She said basically that she saw him in her third eye uh, being cared for by kids and that he was fine. And I thought... Tibby hates kids. In fact, he's scared of everything. But I desperately wanted to believe. And so... Caroline, Wendy
0: drew an illustration of how you imagined Tibby's world and what he was afraid of. And you did it in concentric circles. Um, When I showed it to my therapist, she said... That cat could be you because all the concentric circles (laughs) corresponded to the way I see the world as well. Wendy, what are the circles, if you can share those with our listeners?
3: Tibby is sitting inside of his safe zone, which is probably about six inches in diameter. If you go one circle outside of that, um, raccoons, Raccoons. uh, water (laughs) and (laughs) raccoons, Um, and then if you go six inches outside of that, that would be loud banging noises. <laughs> yes. And then if you go six inches outside of that, that just drops off into certain death. Certain death.
0: Yes. Certain death. Any any further and you are going to die. Um, you all were sure at that point that Tibby had, had left us. Um, and I believe you were actually going outside and, and calling for him and yelling and...
3: Can I just interject here and say that Caroline was going out on the balcony every day, every night and calling at the top of her lungs to become home. Not only that, she was going to the pound. She was not supposed to be driving. This isn't in the book. She's not. She was not supposed to be driving because she was on some medication. But Well, I think I'm sure you were sober at the time when you were driving. But she rigged up a cam strap system. Okay, the firefighter knows how to use... What are they called on top of the car? The racks. The racks on the car to, to, with a cam strap so that her leg with a cage on it could be hoisted up so that she could drive herself down to the pound every day and check. So she was doing everything. Rock on, <laughs> sister. Rock on. Everything humanly possible. To find the
0: cat. Yeah. Of course. Now, you'd think that you find the cat and then the story's over and everybody lives lives happily ever after. The cat returns. And, and Tibby does return. Um, Tibby waltzes into the bedroom late one night. He greets you with a Pavarotti meow. You take him to the vet. He's declared a half pound heavier. He had a silky coat. The vet said he had a youthful spring in his poindexter step. You left the vet with dark emotions, confusion, jealousy, betrayal. You thought you knew your cat of 13 years, but you didn't.
2: This is kind of classic for all of us, I think, when we love a creature We're sure we know exactly who that creature is, whether it be a girlfriend or a cat. And so it really turned my world upside down when this shy and skittish cat was actually the swashbuckling adventurer um, that, by the way, I kind of hoped that I was. And now I was the timid, sort of Mm. unable to leave this small area person So there was a big role reversal, and I'm sure there was a little projection (laughs) going on. But once I realized that Tibby was not the cat I thought he was, he had this secret life. Something happened to me. I think I did what any woman who has been betrayed by the man in their life would do. I decided I was going to stalk him.
0: And so you did. One of the things that you ask in the book about sort of philosophically what happens when your loved one goes away is, is quite beautiful and I I want to share it with our listeners. You say, where do our pets go and what do they do when we're not around and why? Aren't we enough for our furry companions? For animal lovers, these are the ultimate questions. And so began a quest familiar to anyone who has realized that the man in their life is not who he seems. The quest to find out where Tibby had been for all of those five weeks. And so began what you both titled Operation Chasing Tibby. First, you thought he was leaving to enjoy what you described as a little hunka hunka hunka.
3: Hunka hunka hunka.
2: <laughs> this is the first sign that I was going off the deep end. <laughs> actually, and not to me,
3: maybe to Wendy. Wendy, did you think she'd gone off the deep end? Well, she was on a lot of medication. <laughs> okay. <laughs>
2: And I was really depressed.
3: And she was depressed. <laughs> and you were in love. And I was, and so There's I was sickness still... all around. But <laughs> <laughs> she still had a glow about her, and I wanted her to feel happy, excited about something again. And so when she got that fire lit under her to find out what was going on, I could be nothing but supportive. So then you found yourself at a spy store,
0: and you hobbled past shelves of tissue boxes that were really video cameras, past pens that were really tape recorders, and eventually you found something that you thought would help you understand where Tibby went. What was
2: it? It's called Global Positioning System, also (laughs) known as GPS. And the young, very young uh, employee at the store said, if you need to follow somebody, then you need GPS. I didn't tell him what it was for. And so he took me to his GPS collection. And But unfortunately, each one he showed me was huge. And the truth was, in 2009 when this happened, nobody had made a GPS small enough for a cat. I was way ahead of the technological curve. As ever. So... He wears this little device. Well, we found one on the internet, yes. Mm-hmm. Some
3: by, guy actually was making them in his garage. Kindred he, spirit. <laughs> yeah, he had had a similar experience and started creating them himself. So you put this on Tibby, you let him go
0: out and about, and then he comes home and what did you see? What did you, what did you discover?
2: Well, what I was sure I was going to discover um, was the straight line from our house To the place, the The bimbo's house, the perp, the perp, the feral cat colony, (laughs) yeah. Um, And I was just certain it would just we would just solve this issue right there. No more
0: hunka hunka for you, (laughs) baby.
2: (laughs) But unfortunately, when we took the GPS, which was a logger, not a tracker, so we weren't doing this in real time. Which now. To all you cat stalkers out there, there is new technology that allows you to actually watch in real time where your animal slash wife or husband is right on your iPhone. But at the time, this was way back in 2009, and we had to, he had to come back and we downloaded it. And instead of that one true line, we saw instead this wild, wild scribble all over our neighborhood In a 10-hour period, it became clear that Tibby did not sleep. He ran around on methamphetamines. You
0: said that the screen looked as if a kindergartner had been given a Twinkie and then been let loose with a crayon. It was chaos. So no solution. The, The next part of the book is really my favorite part of the book. It's when you imagine where Tibby went, and they are... Uh, paired with the most remarkable illustrations of Tibby in situ in these various places that you imagine. So Wendy, can you talk a little bit about how did you decide what you wanted to actually illustrate? Because there are all sorts of, there are abstract illustrations that are reflecting a mood or a tone or an eyebrow, (laughs) or there are very specific illustrations like Tibby as Shackleton right, right. or Tibby on a Walkabout.
3: There are some things in the book that are just irresistible to draw. Like that's a great example of it. And to be on Rum Spring is another one, right, with a bottle of booze and the cigarettes. I mean you can't not draw that. That's just so much fun. But when Caroline and I first started this, we thought it was going to be the typical writer-illustrator relationship. She was going to write the book and then she was going to give it to me and then I was going to draw to her writing – But we quickly realized that this is not the typical writer-illustrator relationship.
2: Because we're in a relationship. Right. So that
3: changes things. And also, it really developed together simultaneously. Caroline would write some, and then she would pass it to me. I would draw a little bit and pass it back to her. And it kind of went back and forth like a conversation.
2: Yeah, I really realized early. I thought, I've never collaborated before, but I had this idea that I would write the whole book and hand it to the illustrator, who I happen to be also sleeping with. And she would... Then illustrate it. And we. as I started to write, I realized that, in fact, we had both lived this. And this was both of our memoirs. And that this had to be a conversation between me as the writer and the illustrator. And I needed to know what her voice was in order for me to develop my own voice. Because if you've read my other books, they're very different in tone um, than this one. And I think uh, this, so this was a unique situation where I found a new voice, the voice that was sort of made fun of myself. And you do that with real charm
0: and delight. And you're not really just making fun of yourself. I think you're making fun of humanity in this sort of wonderful, loving, accepting way, which I think you can't help then see yourself in the story along with Tibby. Um, Did you ever have arguments about what to
2: draw or what to write?
3: You want to take this one, Caroline? (laughs) (laughs) No, you take this one. No, you. you.
2: (laughs) Well, actually, I will say that I actually initially was like, there is a wall between my art and your art and I will not say anything about your drawing and you say nothing about my writing. I mean basically what I'm saying is we're in a relationship and I have real hurt feelings and if you say bad things about my writing that means you don't love me anymore. I mean that's kind of. Ooh, yeah. So we had this this thing like we were not going to comment and also I respect Wendy's art so much that I knew I wasn't going to need to.
3: I think we had some differences of opinions. <laughs> I mean, yeah, for sure. But it it took a little while for us and like in any relationship to figure out how to talk about it without taking it personally and how to end up coming to the best creative conclusion. And I think that happens in a relationship. It happens in any creative relationship, professional or unprofessional. And we did. We managed to figure out um, a system with structure and then stick to that. So, it took the pressure off, right? So we could make collaborative decisions in an easier way.
2: but I mean, it also uh, <laughs> it makes it sound a lot easier than it was because one of the other things is we work differently. I mean how we, so? we both uh, well, I am very sort of on time. And so when I say, "I'm going to give you this on Tuesday, and how long do you think it'll take you to get back? And if Wendy says a day, Oh, that means twenty-four hours and not a not a minute more. I mean, I'm from New England. This is <laughs> there's no metaphor when it comes to certain things. And Wendy has a different, more artistic view of time. <laughs> Did you like that? that I love that. It. Artistic it view. Is time. I'm gonna I'm Artist gonna say time. that the next time it's I'm like
3: abstract. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> fluid. It's fluid. It's fluid. We're all fluid.
2: Great example of this is when I actually told our editor that we were gonna finish this book in three months. And most books get written in a year, and I said, "No, we can do this in three months." And Wendy, who was right there, said, "Yeah, three months. That sounds great." And she kind of thought I meant like three-ish months. It's like
3: a season-ish kind of-ish.
2: Of. Ish is such a good word.
3: Yeah, it was-ish, and then uh, she meant three months, and we got it done in three months and a day,
2: which was which
0: late. A day,
3: no, that was, and it was early. Fluid, so, fluid. Yeah. <laughs> so Wendy, it must have been
0: quite a remarkable experience to witness the efforts that Caroline was making to find Tibby. Not only did you use the GPS technology, not only did you look for um, a pet detective, which was quite interesting, not only did you take animal communication classes, you still were calling him every night. When you see him come back, one of the feelings that you experienced so plaintively in the book is you, you write, I called him every night. If he had heard me, he would have come home clearly. I mean, I was weeping. He never would have ignored me, not for five weeks, not when I was weeping. This is a 13-year relationship. Therefore, ergo, clearly. How did you, how did you help Caroline understand how to get through this, especially since she really didn't like
3: cats? I really liked Caroline. (laughs) And it's amazing what we'll do when we're in love. And at this point, I mean, it was what we'd been together six months. And so it was like, you know, still. Yeah. It was still quite new. Um, She was
2: trying to impress me. So, (laughs) (laughs) How do you impress the person that you're trying to impress? You like the things you think that they want you to like. Yeah, I was pretending to like the
3: cats and I was. Very supportive. I mean, really, though, she wa- it was so much having to do with she was in this depression. And it's, it's having a sense of purpose pulls us out of a depression. Having something to do regularly every day pulls us out of a depression. Even
2: if it is downloading GPS maps every 10 hours.
0: And, in fact, it was really a failure in understanding where Tibby went. It wasn't until Wendy took over that you really did make some headway.
3: I didn't have to do very much, though. If you look at the maps, they made no sense whatsoever on their own. But after we tried everything else in the world, we went back to the maps, and then I used this high, high technological system called Photoshop that I had learned um, just to layer all the maps on top of each other, make them transparent, and a pattern emerged.
0: Wendy takes over in one of the most hilarious scenes in the book. And Caroline, you describe this so magnificently. This is the way you you write it. You say, okay, Wendy said in a soft voice used for armed people on ledges. Then she put a hand on my shoulder, looked me soulfully in the eyes and said, perhaps I should take it from here. And you did, and you were successful, and you found out where Tibby went. Now, I don't want to spoil the ending of the book because I think it's really important that people read it because it is a remarkable, beautiful book. So let's talk about the changes that occurred. Caroline, you write about this, you say, Wendy had changed in the past few months. She'd gone from being a no-cat person to a cat person. Soon, she would be a bona fide kitty person. She had the quest's best interest in mind now. Nevertheless, I vehemently disagreed with her plan. This was a sensitive time. We were getting close. We couldn't blow it. And yet, that's what found our boy.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: Ultimately, we know that there is a happy ending. I'm not going to give way any more, but... I do want to ask you, what is the biggest thing you learned in this experience about humanity? Not about cats, about humanity.
2: Well, I mean, I think the biggest thing uh, I learned is that you cannot know everything about the creature that you love. And you also can't control that relationship. And maybe that's okay because um, we can't control relationships. In fact, if we did control them, Uh, to the degree that we want, it would probably provide us with, with nothing. You know, relationships are probably our greatest learning experiences. It's wonderful.
3: And I think also we both learn that we really have to kind of risk that loss, and it's almost inevitable at a point that something might leave, but it does come back. So it's that whole thing about letting something go and if it comes back. And ultimately, though, we really do risk losing the ones we love in every which way, and it's almost inevitable that we will, but we kind of have to accept that in order to really know love. You
0: have a list at the end of the book of things that you all experienced and now sort of understand about the world. And I just want to read a couple before we close this show. You say bonkers is in the eye of the beholder. You can never know your cat. In fact, you can never know anyone as completely as you want. But that's okay. Love is better. Wendy McNaughton, Caroline Paul, thank you so much for coming on Design Matters. To get a copy of Lost Cat, please head on over to Amazon.com. I'd like to thank you for listening, and remember, you can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
1: Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions, The show is published exclusively by DesignObserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes Store. You're growing a business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens